this morning. us to and all the people online got to hear me sing so I made sure that didn't happen this week all right uh, so anyway, you're welcome, people that are watching online, that you didn't have to hear me sing this week. Okay. All right. So one other prayer request that I forgot to mention as we were getting going this morning is continue to pray for Susie. Susie is still in the hospital, right? Okay. Uh, she has better times and she has not so good times. And so just pray that they would help, or that they would figure out what is the best course of treatment. Uh, they were trying something. It wasn't working great. So they're trying something different. So if you would pray for Susie and as well for Meredith, that you would, that the Lord would uh, uh, work there and, and strengthen Susie, especially she'd be able to get out of the hospital here pretty soon. And she doesn't really understand what's going on, why she is where she is and why they're doing what they're doing. So all those kinds of things make it a little more difficult uh, and, and also pray that during this time while Susie's in the hospital, Meredith would just catch up on some rest, even though she's got COVID. Hopefully she's getting over that a little bit. But it's a good opportunity for her to uh, just uh, kind of get some extra rest if possible. So pray for them. Uh, it's good to see uh, Caleb and his mom this morning from Texas. Uh, she's probably wondering, why did I leave Texas and come to, you know, this kind of stuff? But anyway, good to have you with us this morning. All right, I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, it's been a great study so far in what we as believers have at our, as our benefits of being in Christ. I've been enjoying our study in 1 Peter so far. How, how about you? Have you been enjoying it? Very good. Uh, and, and you know, I was talking with somebody online, one of our online viewers, and they were telling me how much they've been enjoying the study in First Peter and agreed that it has been a very timely series. Okay, And that's the amazing thing about the scriptures. It's timely. It never changes. It meets us right where we are with the needs that we have and God's word. He said his word is living, it's active, and it's powerful. And so as we continue to work our way through 1 Peter, we are going to see how timely this, this passage of Scripture is for us. As I was reading ahead in the book of 1 Peter a couple weeks ago, I read our text for this morning. And I shared the text and asked some people to pray for me as we would work through this text as we were approaching it. Now, um, when, when this online viewer agreed with me that our series is, is timely, I uh, had just read this paragraph from the pen of the Apostle Peter, and I commented, just wait a couple weeks if you think it's timely right now, okay? So this particular passage of Scripture can be challenging at any given moment in history, okay? Now, I will say that there have been easier times in history to preach this passage, but at least in my lifetime, I would have to say that this is perhaps one of the most difficult times to preach this text of Scripture. But let me be quick to admit that the point in history when Peter was writing this passage may have been one of the most difficult times to write and to preach and to live out this text that we are about to embark on this morning. So without any further ado, let's stand together and read our text for this morning. As you're standing, allow me to remind you that these are not my words, neither are they the words of the Apostle Peter, but in fact, they are the words of our Heavenly Father through the, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let's read together from the screen, if you would, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. 
Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to king as supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as a bondservant of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Please remain standing as we uh, ask God to bless our time together this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you so much for your word. And your word is always what we need to hear, and we're thankful for that. And sometimes, Father, your word is difficult to hear. Sometimes it's not really what we want to hear if we're honest with ourselves and with you, but you already know that sometimes. And so we ask that as we work through this passage of Scripture this morning, a challenging one for sure, that you would work in our hearts, that you would help us to understand what you are trying to teach us through the pen of the Apostle Peter and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Bless our time together in your word. Do what you need to do in our lives as only you can do it from the pages of Scripture, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you very much. Um, So, again, as we look at this passage of Scripture, we want to remind ourselves that God's word is sharp. It's powerful. God's word never changes. So as we look at the pages of Scripture this morning, we want to ask God to do a work that only he can do in our lives. Uh, And again, as we think about this, this is not something, and this is one of the great things about expository preaching, right, Ben? Uh, I didn't go, I, I didn't pick this passage of scripture just because I wanted to preach on it. In fact, I might choose not to preach on it if I could, but that's not my job as a pastor. As, I, as we work through the text of scripture, sometimes we hit some texts that are rather convicting. And sometimes we hit some texts that are rather difficult, and a lot of people will just skip over them. But as a person who is committed, and any pastor should be committed to preaching the whole counsel of the Word of God, we have to deal with the texts as they come up as we study through Scripture. So as we're studying through First Peter, we're going to deal with what Peter has dealt with. And, and be convinced of this, that Peter had to deal with this as well. Okay, so and so did this preacher have to deal with this text of scripture before I could deliver it to you. So maybe if you want to give a little quick prayer for your preacher this morning as he delivers God's word, that would be helpful as well. All right, so we've read our text this morning and we see here, first of all, it opens up kind of with an action statement. What is the action for the child of God? And first, let me say, uh, as you see on your note page, that our action must be marked with humility. In verses 13 through 15, you notice the first word in the text is that word that calls us to look back at what was previously said. Peter set this paragraph up by reminding those who are followers of the living stone that they are his representation in this world. And we are to represent the living stone well. We are to take, our, take on ourselves to be good representatives of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we have to allow the Holy Spirit to be at work in our lives to do that effectively. We cannot represent God properly in our own strength. Otherwise, there'd be no need for salvation. But God saved us, and Jesus, remember he said, I'm going to send the comforter who will guide you, who will direct you, who will help you do what you need to do in this life. So we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit, and as the Holy Spirit convicts us, we live out our Christianity in the lives of others that God brings across our path. All of us here this morning would agree that we have been called to become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ, right? That's an easy thing to agree upon. God wants us to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And so that's, we agree on that this morning, and Jesus set some good examples for us as well, and we'll touch on some of those this morning as we work our way through our text. 
Um, we see that the Apostle Paul dealt with this idea of us becoming like Jesus as well. He says, for those whom he foreknew. Okay, we're talking about foreknowledge there. God knew before, etern- before time even began. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, I know that's a word that a lot of people don't like. Okay? But it's a biblical word, and so we, we, we understand it, we practice it, we believe it, we accept it. He predestined us to something specific. What did God predestine us to? He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So God has called us, every one of us that are sitting in this room this morning who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, God has called us to something very specific. What is it that he's called us to? He's called us to be conformed, to be changed, to be transformed into the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. Wow. That's a tough thing. Because remember what we are? We are all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We are people whose own righteousness, as the prophet Isaiah describes, is nothing but filthy rags. So he had to take us from that to transform us into the image of his son. Now, I'm not going to speak for you, but I know for me, that takes some work. God has to work at my life, and I have to be willing to let him work at my life as well. One of my favorite websites is called gotquestions.org, right, Scott? Um, and I've, I've pointed, to, pointed several people to that website. I'm going to quote from them this morning. They make this comment concerning Christ-likeness. It says, there are three things which contribute to our being more Christ-like. One, our surrender to God. Two, our freedom from sin. And three, our spiritual growth. Now, we've mentioned in the past that Christ's life and ministry here on earth was marked by humility. So that's one of the things that we have to understand. If we're going to become like Christ, we have to be humble. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, becoming in the likeness of men. So that that passage of scripture smacks of humility. It's jam-packed full of how you and I should humble ourselves and have the same mindset of Jesus Christ. So Peter's saying with the backdrop of becoming more like the living stone, there are some things that we need to incorporate into our lives, some things that we need to practice. And first of all, there is an act of submission that we must embark upon as the followers of Jesus Christ. There's an act of submission. Now, this word submission, sometimes people don't like to hear that word. Um, uh, Paul uses it with wives. Husbands love your wives and wives submit to your own husbands. Okay, And oftentimes because of our Maybe it's because of our English uh, mindset, but we take that word submission and it offends us. Why would I want to submit? Why would I want... Because, you know, the, the whole mentality of our culture is looking out for number one, right? Look out for me. I, my interests are most important. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches us. And, and Peter says we need to have an act of submission here. This word submission, it's a military term. Uh, It means to put yourself under the command of a leader. That's really what that word submission says. So when Paul says, wives, submit to your husband, you put yourself under the the leadership of your husband. And that's a a choice that you must make. And it's it's a personal choice. Just like the husband is supposed to submit to Christ, so the wife must also submit to the husband. It's a voluntary choice. It's kind of like, you know, in America, we, we don't have a national draft. We have a selective service where you have to sign up for it, but there's, there's no conscription in America, at least there hasn't been for many, many years. And, and so if you want to serve in the military, you have to volunteer. You have to say, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to do that. I want to go and I want to be part of the, 
the, the group of people that defends our nation. And praise God for those people who voluntarily place themselves under the leadership of another for a specific purpose, in their case, to defend our country. Peter says we must submit We must submit to the powers that be, if you will, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. Now, Ken Weiss, in his uh, word studies in the New Testament, makes this challenge to those who are living stones in the living stone. You know, you and I, we've talked about this. We are living stones, small little stones, in the living stone who is Jesus Christ. Weiss makes this challenge. He says, The exhortation is not merely to obey ordinances, but to create and maintain that attitude of heart which will always lead one to obey them. So now, as we work our way through the text, we have to ask a question. Who is it that Peter is calling us to submit to? Who we submit to? Who is it that Peter says you must submit to? And the first phrase he uses, the first word he uses, is the word ordinances, okay? Now, in our English language, we might think this word ordinances is an authoritative rule or it's a law. Maybe it's a decree or a command or a public injunction or a regulation. But in the Greek, that is not what this word means. In the Greek, one of the translations of this word is the one that fits the context here in First Peter means governmental institutions or authorities. In fact, some translations use the word authorities rather than ordinances. Simon Kistemacher, in his commentary on 1 Peter, says this. Literally, the Greek text has submit to every creation. And the term creation, however, refers to an act by which an authoritative or governmental body is created. So we see that this is not just one particular law or a mandate or something like that. This is the institution of government. And, and you say, well, maybe Peter's kind of off base here. Maybe Peter doesn't have it quite right. Maybe Peter should look at what Paul has to say. Well, Paul says the same thing. Over in Romans 13, Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And he gives us a reason. Well, you might, we might say, Paul, what are you talking about? The government authorities. Do you know who's governing? Well, Paul says, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Well, that takes that excuse away, doesn't it? I guess I don't have that. I can't say that. I have to, Peter and Paul both agree. Uh, And they're not asking us simply to uh, submit to an authoritative rule or law or a decree. They are asking us and telling us that we must submit to the governing authorities, the rulers of our countries. He leaves the idea of government bodies rather vague. So, you know, he doesn't specifically name a particular governing agency or authority. He leaves it open so that it can apply to all people everywhere. He's not saying if you only if you have a Christian leader or a Christian government or whatever, submit to them. He's saying you must submit to the government authorities, uh, whether that's a monarch, whether it's a dictator, whether it's an emperor uh, or a duly elected government official chosen by the general public. Peter and Paul agree that we need to submit to the authorities that are. Now, let's continue on because he gives us a little more information on who we are to submit to. He says, submit to kings as supreme. Now, Peter uses the word for king as uh, he uses it for a human king with a small k. Okay, He's not talking about king, the human kings that might think they're gods. He's saying, submit to the human king, whoever it might be. He's differentiating from the king of kings, which would have a capital K. Not that we shouldn't submit to the king of kings, but when we find out that we're submitting to the small K king, we are actually submitting to the big K king. Okay? So the word supreme here simply means one who has been given the right to govern. Let's not forget who gave them the right to govern. Back in Romans, Paul told us that anyone who rules or reigns does so because God in his sovereignty placed them here or placed her here for that point in time. And you know what? There's often people who are ruling and reigning that we don't particularly agree with. 
Yeah, and we could, and I'm not going to go into anything more than that, but, but throughout your lifetime, have you agreed with every president that has served our country? But you know what? God has put them there. They didn't get there by mistake, regardless of how you think of the outcome of the election. It was God's plan for President Biden to be our president right now. Yes, and we don't understand it. And you know why we don't understand it? Because we don't see the big picture. God is at work. God is doing what he, and if we believe God is sovereign, we have to be okay with that. Doesn't mean we have to agree with everything. And, and, and let's be honest, we don't. When they choose to do things that are contrary to the word of God, we don't agree with it. Doesn't mean we shouldn't say anything about it. We should continue to speak up, speak the truth, and, 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 you know, and to be a voice for what is true and what is right. But we still must submit to the powers that be. And we'll get to a place where we don't submit, but hang on with me just for a little bit till we get there. Now, some of you might be thinking, Pastor, you have to be kidding me. You can't expect me to submit to a government that does not want to do what is best for the country or submit to a government that is not following the ways of God. Believe me, I can identify with that. And know this, before I could preach this message to you, I had to preach it to me. It is a hard one. And I spent a lot of time in prayer for our government before I could preach this message. And, and I had to spend some time, you know, admitting to God that, yeah, my attitude, and even some things that I've said recently, probably shouldn't have said. But I dealt with that. And I came to the terms, the conclusion that when I want to speak poorly about the government, I should instead pray for the government. And ask God to do a work. Wouldn't it be an amazing thing if there'd be a revival in our political offices? That God would get a hold of the hearts and lives of people who don't believe in the, the ways of God and practice the things of God? If God would do a work in their heart and lives, wow, that would be amazing. He certainly can. And so Peter says, pray for those who are in authority. So let me encourage you, and it will take some work. I've had to bite my tongue a lot of times this past week. But train yourself to rather, instead of speak negatively or poorly, to pray. And let God do the work that only God can do. In fact, you know what? Let's stop right now and do that. Let's stop and pray for our country, our leaders, and our president. I'm going to ask Paul. Would you do that for us, Paul? Lord, let us 
us submit as this process goes through, Lord. We know that there are things that we have to stand firm against. But Lord, let us follow your words and what you would like us to do. Lord, in, in, in addition to that, Lord, let's pray too today for the people who are submitting, our military, our police, our fire departments, nurses and doctors, Lord, that do so much for us, Lord. We just thank you for that submission. But we pray more for the submission to you that I will reach out to your revival. And we pray these things, Lord, in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Paul. You might be thinking, Pastor, how do we submit to government leaders when, when they're leading us the wrong direction, when, when we're living in darkness and, and they're not leading us into an area that would suggest we're moving to the light? Well, it would be easy for us, and sometimes this is what we do, and I admit that I've done it. We justify our attitudes by thinking and saying, these people are ungodly. These people are bad for our country. But let me stop right there, and let me remind you that when Peter wrote this, and when Paul wrote Romans 13, they were writing in a far worse time than we are living in right now. They were writing under the, the, the rulership of a guy by the name of Nero. We affectionately refer to Nero as Nero the Nut. Nero the Zero, okay? Nero was a crazy guy. Here's a short history on Nero. He eventually had his mother, Agrippina was her name, who had, he, he, she murdered several people so that Nero could become the emperor, even though he was not the rightful heir to the throne. Nero stabbed her to death for treason, and then his wife Octavia beheaded her for adultery. Now get this, Octavia's head was displayed before Nero's mistress. How can you kill somebody for adultery when you're involved in it yourself? Well, that's the kind of person Nero was, okay? Um, and years later, this, his mistress, Popina, he kicked her to death when she was pregnant. Unfortunately, this is but the tip of the bloody and treacherous iceberg of Nero's reign. Nero tried to pin the blame for the fire that wiped out much of Rome on the city's small Christian population. They were regarded as a district of dissident Jewish people. And so, appropriately, Nero burned many of them alive. Peter and Paul were said to have been martyred as a result of Nero's reign of terror. That's according to Christian History Institute. So as bad as we might think we have it, we're not as bad off as Peter or Paul or many others down through the ages of history. Kistemacher again makes this comment. He says, because of his conduct... Nero was not worthy of the highest office of the Roman Empire. Nevertheless, Peter recognizes him as the supreme authority and exhorts the Christians to obey him. Huh. We might have it tough, but they had it tougher. He says not only to kings as supreme, but to governors. Peter describes governors as those sent to punish those who do wrong and compliment those that do good. There were different kinds of governors in Peter's day, especially when, when Peter and Paul wrote these, these, uh, these commands to submit. Uh, there were the governors of the king, and then there were the governors of the senate. Okay, The governors of the senate... The, they were governors that were appointed for a period of time. They had term limits. How novel is that? Um, and for example, Quirinius was, was governor of Judea when they sent out the tax, the census in Luke chapter 2. Uh, he was only there at the appointment of the Senate for a period of time. Then there were governors appointed by the emperor. Three of them are mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, and we're, gonna, we're not going to play a game, but you could try and pick the best one. You probably would have a hard time doing that. There was a guy by the name of Pilate. Pontius Pilate, you know him, right? Um, then there was a guy named Felix. Sounds like a cartoon, right? Felix the cat. Um, and then there was a guy named Festus. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, we watched this program called Gunsmoke. Guy named Festus was the deputy. And for some reason, Festus just didn't seem to have it all together, did he? 
Um, I think maybe they kind of got those names from Felix and Festus and the, the, the Roman governors. But anyway, uh, these governors often served in areas where the emperor considered them to be troublesome areas. <laughs> That's why Pilate got to be the governor of, of Jerusalem. He, he probably didn't choose that spot. That's not a spot that you'd say, hey, can I be the governor of Jerusalem? Because the Jewish people, they were troublemakers because, well, at least in their eyes, they were troublemakers because they were more interested in doing what was right based on the Old Testament scriptures than they were based on Roman tradition and law and all that kind of stuff. So they became known as troublemakers, kind of like Christians would later become known as troublemakers because they turned the world upside down for Christ, okay? Um, So these governors may not be the top dogs, but they exist for the purpose of maintaining law and order in the community, Now, there's a little aside here that Peter presents. Peter lets us in on how government, on why government exists, at least from God's perspective. He says that the government exists for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. I remember having a conversation on Facebook with somebody um, about the role of government in our lives, and I presented this argument to them that the government is there for the purpose of protecting society, uh, keeping society in an order, orderly and established way, moving in the right direction, doing what is good, um, not for all of the social things. Government doesn't exist for that, not supposed to exist for that. Okay, this is not a political science class, but I'm just saying that the government does not exist to provide the needs, provide for the needs of all people. The churches should be doing that. The people of God should be doing that. We should be caring for those that we know have needs. And so that's our job, not the government's job, but the government took some of that and said, we'll do it. And so we said, okay, you can have it. But that's not their job. Their job is to bear the sword protect the nation as a whole, and to protect the, the, the people from unruly people outside of a community that does what is right. So it's important for us to understand God's perspective of what government is. Now, and I, I'll admit that it would be nice, in fact, it would be great if that's what government did. But Peter does not include his command, he does not include in his command a conditional clause. He doesn't say, if the government does this, you do this. He says, you do this. And, and, and so we, we look at some people in the history of the, of the New Testament, uh, people that didn't submit to government. In Acts chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, the government, the leader said, we strictly charged you not to teach in his name. That's the name of Jesus. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man, Jesus's blood upon us. So what was the government? What were the leaders telling the apostles? Don't preach the gospel. Don't teach about Jesus. Don't do what God has told you to do. What was Peter and Paul's response? What was Peter's response? Peter and the apostles answered and said, we ought to, we must obey God rather than men. So if you're looking for an out in the submission to government, the out is if the government tells you to disobey God, then you, di- you disobey government and you obey God. But be ready to pay the consequences. Okay? Peter and John both were thrown in prison. They were thrown in jail. They were beaten. They were, they were you know, poorly treated because they chose to obey God rather than men. And if that's the case, so be it. We must be willing to, to, to take that. And by God's grace and mercy, he will see us through. Either see us through the, the, the persecution or take us to heaven. And either way, uh, it's a win for us. Okay, so that's the out, but that's the only out that we see as we study the pages of Scripture. Now, Paul, Peter gives us here the argument for submission. First of all, we see that the act uh, of submission, and now we see the argument for submission. Why, Peter? You know, sometimes we're like young children, we want to know why. Why, Peter? Why do we submit? And I'm not sure I can say it any better than Peter said it. He put it this way. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So what is it that Peter's saying? Peter's saying, you show you are in God's will for your life. Many times people say to me, Pastor, what is God's will for my life? Well, I can tell you without hesitation, this is God's will for your life. 
Why? Because God says so. Wouldn't it be great if every bit of God's will for our life was that simple, that easy to figure out? What's my next job? What's my next house? Those aren't quite that simple, are they? But here's one right here. This is the will of God for you. Oh, okay. Christians, we often want to be followers of God's will, and that's a good thing. Here's one of those clear-cut statements on how we can be in the heart of God's will. What's the other reason for submitting to government? Peter says, you silence foolish people. That's a pretty good reason. You silence foolish people. When we're submitting to the God-ordained authorities, those that accuse us of not living as we ought, will not have anything to charge us with because we're living in obedience to the will of God. When people say, so-and-so did something wrong, if we're doing what God wants us to do, generally speaking, that keeps us out of trouble. Now, sometimes we will find ourselves in trouble because we've done what God wants us to do. And when that's the case, Peter says, you suffer for it. You take it. You, you man up and you let the chips fall where they may, but you always remain obedient to the cause of Christ. As followers of Jesus, it's our goal to advance the cause of Christ, not to advance a particular mindset or a heritage. And we, we had to keep that in mind as we ministered in South Africa. We didn't go to South Africa to make Western Christians. We, met, we went to South Africa to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ and to establish a South African church. Not an American church in South Africa, but a South African church. So we surrounded ourselves with people who could help us do that. Talked to one yesterday on, the, uh, on WhatsApp, uh, and he's looking forward to coming and visiting us. But you see, we wanted to make sure that we were not imposing our mindset, our heritage upon them. We tried to become as South African as possible unless the tradition or the culture contradicted Scripture, and then we didn't operate under that principle. We operated under the biblical principle. But, you know, we didn't want people saying, well, see, you just started an American church in Africa. Because believe me, we saw that, and that wasn't effective. We didn't want that. We wanted to establish a place where South Africans could gather, fellowship, love God, serve God, and impact others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Followers of the living stone, we do what is right because it is right. And as we become more like the living stone, we understand that obeying our great God may not be easy, right? Doing what God tells us to do, it may not be easy, it may not be popular, and it may not be convenient, but it's always the right thing to do. Peter wanted his readers, and he wants you and I, to do that which is right and what is good, because that is the will of God for the followers of God. It's never God's will for us to do something that is not right, that is not conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. He always wants us to do what is right. So as we see our action, let's move on now into what we would consider our authenticity, if you will, verses 16 and 17. Peter says, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. You might have saw the title of our message. It's complicated, or is it? Okay, It's really not. When we choose to do what God would ask us to do, we show that we are authentically those who are children of God. We see, though, here a paradox the paradox of being in the living stone in verse 16. Do we have freedom or do we not have freedom? And sometimes when we think about, we focus on our freedom, we tend to think, well, I, as, a, as a person who's free and as a person who's an American, I have certain freedoms, I have certain rights, and you can't trample on my rights. Well, can I tell you this? We give up most of our rights at the foot of the cross, we, we, we have them technically as Americans, but when they interfere with our clearly communicating and living out the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to be willing to let them go. 
and, and say, okay, my greatest freedom is freedom from sin. So yes, we have freedom. We are free from the law of sin. We are free from the bondage of sin. We are free from the oppression of sin. We are free indeed, but we have to be careful how we use our freedom. Jesus said to those that believe it, Jesus said that those who believe in him, they are free indeed. And no one and nothing can take away our freedom. Paul taught the Romans that those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Can I tell you this? There is no greater freedom in this world than being free from the condemnation of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. They may throw us in jail for preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And yes, we may be confined. We may not have the freedom to roam around and do what we want to do, but we have no condemnation. We know where we will spend eternity. And that is in a place called heaven. And that is the greatest freedom anyone could ever have. We are free indeed, and we are free in Christ. Peter agrees in our text this morning that we are indeed free, but just because we are free, we are not to use this freedom to slide back into sin. Peter wants us to understand that our freedom gives us the opportunity to serve God as God has called us to serve him. We have the opportunity to love others. Both serving God and loving others are part of our opportunities and responsibilities in the family of God. I love the comment in the New Testament commentary on Peter and Jude by, uh, it says here, the Christian conducts himself in public life as God's elect. He is free without any fear as long as he serves God in absolute obedience. And he goes on to say, true liberty then is that which harms or injures no one. Peter is explaining the difference here between what might be considered our rights and what true freedom really is. You see, Christians enjoy true freedom when they obey God and live as servants of God who honor him. So we have this paradox that we live in, this, this idea of freedom, but what are we free to, what are we free from, and how do, we like, how do we live in light of that freedom? And then Peter goes on to talk about the practice of those in the living stone in verse 17. As Peter closes out this paragraph, he gives us the modus operandi, if you will, or the standard operating procedures for those who are in the living stone. And this is not simply what Peter expects from the followers of Jesus, but it is what God expects. More important than what Peter expects, it's important what God expects from those that name the name of Jesus. This verse has been, been described as a four-point summary of Christian citizenship. How should I live as a Christian citizen, regardless of what country I live in, okay? So Peter says, first of all, the first step in living out your Christian citizenship is respect, honor all people. This respect or this honor is at the heart of our desire to see others come to know Jesus as their savior. You see, the Bible doesn't call us to agree with everyone, we're not all cut from the same, same cloth, same mold. We're different. And we don't have to agree with everyone just because we know Jesus as our Savior. We have every right to disagree with a particular position or stance, especially when it contradicts the Word of God. We should agree, disagree with it. Okay? And the Bible doesn't call us to agree with everyone, but we need to respect them because Why? Why, pastor, why do I have to respect somebody who, who practices and believes in abortion? Why do I have to respect them? Well, here's the reason. Because they, like you and I, were created in the image of God. We call it the imago dei. We were created, nothing else in all of creation, no animal, no living organism was created in the image of God. But mankind and everyone who has been born into this world is created in that image of God. So therefore, we respect that. 
We honor that. This respect, this honor of all people was contradictory in the day that Peter wrote in his culture. You know why? Because most, well, there were two classes of people, so to speak. There were slave owners and there were slaves. Okay? And if you were a slave, you were considered less than a person. So Peter is writing and saying, hey, I want you to understand that from God's perspective, every person who has ever been born, slave or free, is created in the image of God. And we must respect that and we must honor that. Regardless of what our culture, what our, what our human teachings put forth to us, we must honor the fact that all people are created in the image of God. Peter's teaching Jesus followers that no person, no group of people should be treated less than an individual. Quite the opposite, in fact. Everyone, regardless of nationality, regardless of race, regardless of economic status, should be respected because they are created in the very image of God. Thank you, God, for that privilege of being created in your image. So we respect all people. Peter says we recognize the need to love one another, especially those who are, are, who are brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, love the brotherhood. The second command that Peter gives in regard to living out our Christian citizenship is to love others in the family of God. Follow those who are fellow Jesus followers. We love them. We, we need to love them. We must love them. We should want to love them. And this love should be evident outside the walls of our church. We should love so that people who are not believers in Jesus Christ will know that we love one another. I, when I was growing up, there was a, a series of movies that talked about the end times. There was The Thief of the Night, and then there was Distant Thunder, and I forget the third one. But the theme song for Distant Thunder was, they will know we are Christians by our love. Okay? So, as a follower of Jesus Christ, people should know that I love all of you. And that you love me. And that love should be so evident that when people see us interacting with one another or the way we talk with one another uh, or talk about one another, the love of God for one another should be evident in our lives. This idea of love, it's seen throughout the pages of the New Testament. Jesus spoke so much about it. Uh, he spoke in John 13, 34 and 35 this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. Wow. We're supposed to love each other the way Jesus loved one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John wrote that in his gospel. John also wrote this over in 1 John chapter 3. This, Jesus said, is my commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Jesus told us to love one another, so what do we do? We love one another. It's the right thing to do. Sometimes it's hard, right? But it's what we do. So others will know that we are followers of Jesus Christ. So we respect, we recognize the need to love one another, and we revere. That's the third step in our Christian community, in our Christian citizenship. We revere, or in other words, we fear God. This idea of fearing God has often been misunderstood. Sometimes, think, sometimes people think that fearing God is just being afraid for every step you take that God might reach down out of heaven and zap you with a lightning bolt. Thankful that he doesn't, right? That's not what the fear of God is. That's not what Peter is talking about. The word for fear here doesn't have anything to do with being in terror, nor does it have anything to do with cowardice. It actually has a few components to the, to the idea of fear. And I learned something this week as I was studying this out. Reverencing him is part of fearing God. As we study scripture and as we discover who our great God is and what he's really like, we grow in our awe and reverence for him. 
We know what he could do if he wanted to, but that's not what propels us to serve him. We are thankful that he's promised he won't do that to us. He has, he has guaranteed that we will spend eternity in a place called heaven. Oh, hallelujah. All right? So we reverence him, but we also trust him. As we know more about our great God, the more we will trust him. The more I know somebody or something, I will trust him. We, when we lived in South Africa, we went to this place called the Nisna Heads. We went there several times. This is a unique place. Um, there's two big rocky formations in, out, you know, kind of in the ocean a little bit. And, and the, every time it gets high tide, the, the water flows through these heads and it fills up the lagoon for, I don't know, maybe a mile or so back. And when you go in at low tide, you see all these boats that are dry docked. And you're wondering, well, how do they, what's the deal with this? How do these boats get out into the water? Because there's no water at low tide. But when, these wa- when the water comes through the heads, it fills up the area and people get out to their boats and they get in their boats and they go out into the ocean. Now, at the heads, there's, there was this place where you could actually go out, separated by huge, you know, a couple larger rock formations with these handmade wooden bridges that you could walk out on. And I'd been there several times, and I knew that these bridges were safe. They, were, they could be trusted. I, you know, they, there, sometimes you had to jump from one, place, one to the next because one was broken off or something. Um, but you'd go out there, and you'd get out there, and the water would start coming in, and you were like, kind of like on an island. So I went out there one time, and Barb was standing back on the, other, the, the dry area, and I said, come. And it wasn't like, probably from here to the, maybe the classroom out there. Two, two sets of bridges. I'm like, come. He's like, I said, come. He's like, not going to do it. I said, come on. You've never done it before. Let it be the first time. Come on out here and join me out here on the rocks. And so finally, I coaxed her, and she came out. We even have a picture of us kissing each other way out there uh, as proof that we were both out there at the same time. So finally, she gets out there. But as we're out there, the tide keeps coming in. So that water is getting higher and higher and higher. So now, when we went out there, it was, you know, you, it was, the water was low. But as the tide comes in, you have to go back, and now the water is splashing up on you as you walk back over these somewhat suspect bridges. But I trusted the bridges. Maybe it was more stupidity than trust. But anyway, I trusted the bridges and I convinced my wife to, to trust them as well. So we trusted them. We both knew that you could walk out on them in safety. So that's the idea of trusting God. The more I let God work in my life, the more I do what he tells me to do, the more I understand who he is. He's sovereign, he's gracious, he's loving, he's merciful. Those things that I continue to learn as I, as I study the pages of Scripture, I begin to say, hey, God can be trusted with my life. He can be trusted with every aspect of my life, not just the things that, you know, maybe I can do something about, maybe I can't, so I might as well trust somebody because they can do more than I can. I'll just trust it to God. I should trust Him with every aspect of my life. And so the more I get to know him, the more I trust him. You know, I'm, it was hard to, I don't know if I'd ever get her back out there again, okay? But she saw me go out there and she saw others of our friends go out there. And so the more she saw that these bridges were okay and somewhat trustworthy, finally I was able to convince her to come out. The more I trust God, the more I see God work in my life, the more I see God do in my life, the more I'm willing to trust him with my life. So I trust him. That's part of fearing God. I know who he is. I've seen him work in my life. So no matter what's happening in my life right now, I can trust him. And I should trust him. So we have reverencing him. We have trusting him. And here's the next one. And I I wasn't sure that I ever thought about this one when I equated fearing God with something. But I should worship him. Revere him, I trust him, and I worship him. You see, when I see God for who he is, 
when I learn more about him and I know who he is, and this leads me to a proper and a greater desire to worship this God who loves me and prepared a way for me to have everlasting life. We worship him as the divine sovereign that orchestrates our lives in accordance with his will for our lives. I like what John MacArthur says as he ties fearing God to honoring the king. He says this, Such fear also encourages believers to submit to all earthly authorities because they have the utmost respect for the one who has commanded them to do so. So why do I submit to the authorities? Because God told me to. So I do. Now, please don't misunderstand me. And, and, and I'm not telling you that you can't have your own opinions. That you can't have your own desires. But if those desires are not contradictory. Let me just, can I, I'll just use one from public situation around us right now. The whole vaccine idea. You want to get vaccinated? Get vaccinated. You don't want to get vaccinated? Don't get vaccinated. That's a personal choice. Nobody and nothing should be able to tell you differently. Okay? It's not right. It's not wrong. It's not obeying God. It's not disobeying God. You can do that. All right? But I, what I, whether I get the vaccine or don't get the vaccine, that may depend on how I see and view others. And that's between you and God. You need to come to those terms yourself. I can't tell you how to, do, how to act in that area. That's between you and God. I know what I've done, and you know what you've done. And, and hopefully we've both done what we've done to honor the Lord and to give Him glory. And, and so there's not a right or wrong here. But understand that when you and I worship the one true God, part of that worshiping him is submitting to those that he has placed in authority. So then he says, after he says, we respect, we recognize, we revere, he says that we must resolve to do something. We must resolve to honor the king. Peter's bringing us right back to where he started, all the way back up in verse 13. Honoring the king and those in authority is the right thing for the child of God to do unless it contradicts the pages of scripture. Okay? Unless there's a clear-cut thing in the pages of scripture that I should be obeying, that the government tells me to disobey, then I must obey and honor the king. It's good for us to do this for a couple of reasons. The obvious reason is because God commanded it, and when we obey the Lord, he is pleased with our lives. It honors him. So in honoring him, those he has ordained to rule over us, when we honor them, it brings glory to him. And it's also good for our testimony. It allows us to call others to Christ and to become his followers because we are living like he lives. Again, let me quote one more time from Johnny, McCar Johnny Mac, as they call him. When believers obey the principles of this passage, it gives genuine credibility to their faith. Submission to civil authority is an implementation of what might be called, get this, I love this phrase, evangelistic citizenship. Okay? Evangelistic citizenship. So I must resolve to honor the king. As God has commanded me. So when I started this morning, I said this was a hard message to preach. Thank you for those of you that have been praying for me to preach it. And I trust I've preached it with integrity and in agreement with the text. As we consider the world that we live in, we might not want to do what this passage calls us to do. But as followers of Christ, we don't get to choose which commands of his we follow and which ones we don't. If scripture is our authority for faith and practice, which we say it is around here all the time, that's what we say. If, <coughs> if scripture is our authority for faith and practice and glorifying God and becoming like Jesus is our aim, then sometimes we have to have a change of thought and sometimes a change of action and sometimes even the things that we say. But if it makes us more of what he wants us to be, then we must do the right thing, even if it's the hard thing to do. So our title this morning, Is It Complicated 
or it's complicated, or is it? Well, we can make it complicated, but it doesn't have to be. If obedience is our choice, even when it's the hard choice, then God can help us do it without it being complicated. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and I want to thank you for allowing me to 